Okay, good morning to you. Happy uh, 4th of July. This morning we have the privilege of studying together Parshas Balak. I'm very excited because normally I'm on vacation this time and uh, with it the Parsha class. So the opportunity to study this Parsha with you is, uh, is very exciting. We're on page 856 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And uh, our Parsha begins, Vayar Balak ben Tzipor Eskola Asa Yisrael Amori. We'll do a quick overview of the parsha and then delve into the psukim. But most of us are familiar with the storyline, the narrative of this parsha, when the Jewish people are now emerging as a nation. We've gone from the family, dysfunctional family, to hopefully a functional family. The birth of an adolescent nation, who are going through the growing pains of complaining, of rebelling. All sefer bamidbar really is not so heartwarming. And uh, we fast-forwarded. Last week's parsha contained 38 years. From the beginning of the parsha to the end, we made it through most of the years of travel in the Midbar. And perhaps the evidence of the growth of the Jewish people is how they are perceived as a threat now to those around them. To the point that it elicits Balak's attention. Balak feels threatened as the uh, head of Moab and wants to eliminate the Jewish people. Something that began since Avram Avinu was thrown into the Kivshan Ha'ish, when our great forefather and patriarch Avraham was cast into the furnace through the Jewish people's travel. They're attacked by Amalek, then Balak, and fast forward thousands of years until this very day. We continue to be perceived for whatever reason as a threat, and there are those who will continue to be bent on our elimination. So Balak is introduced to us. Balak is the son of Tzipor. He lives in Moab. And he rises to want to eliminate the Jewish people. And only in Pasuk Dalad, the end of Pasuk Dalad, are we alerted to the fact that Balak ben Tzipor, Melech lemoav ba'isahi. Only then are we alerted to the fact that, Boa, that Balak is, is the king. Why did it take so long? So in the new Rabbi Salavetcher Chumash, he quotes, the Rav quotes his grandfather, Rabbi Chaim, saying something that certainly is not clear from the text, a little bit astounding. It says, Balak, this seems to be a strange way to start the narrative. Balak is introduced at the beginning of the parish, but the Torah waits three verses to tell us his CV. We don't find out he's the king of Moab. Reb Chaim explained that initially Balak was not the king of Moab. He was simply a citizen who was fearful of the fate of the people of Moab. Balak therefore sought the counsel of Midian and developed a plan to protect the people. Only after Balak demonstrated his concern for his nation's welfare, which is the primary responsibility of a king, only then was he appointed king over Moab. So unlike what we're trained to think, that when the plan arose to exterminate the Jewish people, he was already the king, Rabbi Chaim suggested it was the result of that plan through which he rose to the position of being the king. But whatever the case may be, Balak gives some thought, he knows militarily, physically, the enemies of Israel has not succeeded, Amalek failed, and others. And therefore he devises a scheme, rather than physically engage the Jewish people and try to eliminate them physically, he would confront them spiritually. He, and he recruits uh, Bilam uh, ben Boor to come and to curse the Jewish people. And then Bilam, which we're not going to study today, but the fascinating back and forth. Bilam is a great villain of the Torah. Bilam has enormous potential. We know that nobody arose within the Jewish people like Moshe, but Bilam was a prophet in the non-Jewish world who was as great. 
who had that access to the Almighty, who could have been that transformative leader, but he failed. And the reason that God gave the nations of the world a prophet on par with Moshe was so that they could never point to us and claim, if only we had a master, if only we had a teacher, if only we had a leader as great as Moshe, we too would be worthy. We too would be virtuous. So God gave them that leader. But even with that opportunity, even with that access, they failed. To us, Bilaam is a great villain. When you read the simple text, you struggle to find out why. It's complicated. Bilaam looks like he's very worthy, very loyal to the Ribbon Shalom, to the master of the universe. He's unwilling to travel without God's consent. He's unwilling to curse without God's support. So Bilaam not only doesn't look like a villain, he looks like a hero. He looks like he's acting in a proper way. And Chazal, our rabbis have a lot to say about him. That what he was doing externally did not reflect what his thoughts were internally. Bilaam was very driven by ego, by arrogance, and that it's much more than meets the eye in our parsha. But that's worthy of its own study, why the text on the surface makes Bilaam look like he's doing the right thing. He asks for God's permission, God's consent, God's license. And yet we have a tradition of what a villain he is. Balak recruits Bilaam when he hesitates by continuing to engage him with greater honor. Until Bilaam relents, he's coming with his donkey, We have the episode of the donkey speaking to him. That in itself is fascinating. Is it meant to be taken literally or figuratively? No less than the Rambam in Moranavuchim writes that the story of Bilam talking to his donkey, the donkey talking to him, is uh, is a nevuah. It was in a dream. This is not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken allegorically. Bilam's donkey did not actually speak. Whereas we also have a great tradition that no, it's meant to be taken literally that God suspended the rules of nature. Normally animals do not communicate in our vernacular. And in this case, it was an exception. The donkey spoke and it was a message to Bilaam. The same way I can put the words in the donkey's mouth, I can put the words in your mouth as well. You think you have autonomy? You think you have independence? You think you can formulate what you want to say? The same way I can suspend and interfere with the natural order to put words in the mouth of the donkey, so too I can in your mouth as well. What I always find fascinating is, really there's a reverse that takes place here. The school, the tradition that say, that understand and approach the Torah literally, the Rambam, who's a literalist, a rationalist, who takes the Torah literally, who does not engage in a lot of exegesis, drush, here says, no, donkey speaking is an anomaly. The, Torah, the Rambam actually writes, the Torah wouldn't expect you to believe something that's such an anomaly to the rules of nature. Bilam is not worthy of such a miracle of interfering with the natural order on his behalf. The Elamai says the Rambam, it must mean that it's meant to be taken allegorically. So the Rambam, who normally is the great literalist, suspends his general approach of literally understanding and says, no, it's meant to be taken figuratively. And others who engage in drush all the time, who engage every pusuk in an attitude of drush, here all of a sudden the donkey talking, now they engage in pshat. So the school of pshat has no problem here with drush. The school of drush has no problem here with pshat. But everybody engages in what exactly is going on. Did this donkey speak? Is it meant to be taken literally or figuratively? We know that Bilaam had more than a casual relationship with the donkey. We're in front of the Aron Kodesh, so I will not uh, explain further. But to tell you a little bit more insight into Bilaam and why Chazal saw him as a villain, Bilaam had more than just a casual relationship with his uh, donkey. The donkey, how do you say donkey in Hebrew? Chamor. Bilaam is not the only one. 
the Torah uses the term Ason here, Vatera Ason is Malach Hashem, the Ason sees the Malach and kicks, bangs uh, Bilam's leg against the wall. But we also call a donkey a Chamor. Who else rides a Chamor? Thank you, Moshe. Who else rides a Chamor? Moshe rides a Chamor. Who else? Avram Avinu wakes up early in the morning in order to prepare his chamor. Most of our patriarchs, our greatest figures and leaders and teachers, had a donkey. In the Maharal, it's a theme that is pervasive throughout the Maharal's writings, is the notion of the chamor, the donkey, is the symbol of chomer. Chomer means the material world, the physical world. Chomer is matter. The, the Maharal develops the theme of chomer and surah. Chomer is matter and material, and surah is the shape, the direction, how it's channeled. And the Maharal sees within the references to those who rode the donkey, the difference between what Avram and Moshe Rabbeinu and others did with the chamor, with the chomer. They rode the donkey, but they rode, they mastered, they manipulated, they gave it surah to the chomer. They engaged the physical world, and they give it meaning and purpose. They elevate the physical in order to channel it towards the spiritual. As opposed to Bilam, who Bilam's relationship with his chamor is not one of mastering the chamor to give the chamor tzura. It's not one of taking the physical material of the world and shaping it in order to elevate to the spiritual. But it's really exactly the opposite. Bilam's relationship with the chamor is a relationship of love with the chomer. Bilam has an incestuous and appropriate immoral relationship with the Chomer. He engages the Chomer in a way where he's not shaping it to elevate the spiritual, but the Chomer, the Chamor, the physical, is an ends unto, unto itself. The, uh, Bilam finally gets there. He opens his mouth to give the first curse. And what comes out instead? A blessing came out instead. I'm so happy you're here. A blessing came out instead. That's right. Instead of a pre-Gan Eden is a separate conversation. And what was the nature there? Is a, to, so the uh, Bilam opens his mouth to give a curse and instead a bracha comes out. As you can imagine, Balak who spent all this money and invested all of his authority in Bilam cursing the Jewish people is rather disappointed. Bilam gives it a second shot. And what comes out of his mouth? A curse? A blessing, a bracha comes out instead. Balak again gets furious. Bilam gives it a third shot, which is what we're going to study together. And what comes out of his mouth? A blessing. A blessing, not a... You should come every week. We make a good, a good tag team. And instead comes out a, a blessing. Bilam gives one last prophecy and Balak dispenses with him. You're useless. I brought you for one purpose. You didn't fulfill it whatsoever. And the end of the parsha is when our enemies finally tap into our vulnerability, where we have the greatest risk. And what is that vulnerability? Where is the greatest risk? Not militarily. Militarily, we had an advantage, a superiority. They could not succeed. Not spiritually, because the Ribbon Shalom interfered with Bilam's curses and turned them into blessings. Where is our greatest vulnerability? So turn to page 874, the end of the parasha. Jewish people settled down. We were not 
targeted for extermination. We had attained a level of comfort. We are enjoying the man is delicious, anything you want it to taste like. And if the man tasted like steak and then you wanted ice cream a minute later, did you have to wait six hours? There's actually discussion among, uh, there's discussion about these things. The bracha on the man and the status of the man. Interesting. But anyway, you got to enjoy the man and you got to drink from the be'er and you had the protection of the ananei kavod and the eish. You had it all. So when you have it all and you could settle into a position of comfort and you're not running for your life, you're not targeted, you're not excluded, what happens to the Jewish people? Vayachel ha'am, the people They began to commit znus. They began to have promiscuity, licentiousness, lust after the local women who were not for them. Vayachel, what's the root of that word? Vayachel. When Noach emerges from the Teva, it says Vayachel Noach. He plants a vineyard. Rashi there tells us what's the root of the word Vayachel? Chulin, chol. Chol means mundane. Profane. It's the opposite of Kodesh. Lahavdil Bain, Kodesh, Lechol. Motzei Shabbos, we make Avdallah, and we talk about that the purpose of a Jew, the, the definition, the mission of our life, is Lahavdil Bain, Kodesh, Lechol, to distinguish between the sacred and the profane, between the elevated and the mundane. Noah emerges from this experience, he's so traumatized, Vayachel, he turns his life into Chulin. He goes from this spiritual giant who rescues the future of humanity to needing a drink, maybe understandably, needing a good drink, and he plants a vineyard, Vayachel, he turns his life into Chulin. And here too, this Dordea, this generation in the desert, who had heard God speak, who experienced revelation, Vayachel Ha'am, they had attained the heights of spirituality, and now they concede their spirituality and... The comfortable position they found themselves in gives them the, the, the margin, the room in their life for znus. Now they are taken by the beautiful women of Moab who throw themselves at them. And we know the story that emerges and um, the, the Chazat tell us that these women would solicit the men. They would beautify themselves, they would be promiscuous, they would seduce the Jewish men, and right as they were about to engage in immorality with the Jewish men, they'd, they'd take out their idol, and they'd say, you know, just one thing, do for me, when they'd pass this point of, so to say, no return of having seduced them, just worship this idol. So they understood the vulnerability of not only the Jewish people, the vulnerability of man is, uh, as uh, our cousin Sigmund Freud would say, but... The, the ig, the id, the, the lustfulness within, uh, within humanity is a vulnerability that is universal across time and across place. And when they fail to confront us militarily and they fail to confront us spiritually, this was our greatest vulnerability. Rabbi Salavechik in his Chumash at the end of the parasha writes, he quotes this pasuk, a Jewish man came, he took a Midianite woman, and before Moshe, before the entire people, they acted inappropriately to the point that everybody was crying at the opening of the Omoid. Bilam understood a fundamental principle regarding the Jewish people, and he gave advice to Balak as to how to defeat them. Their God, quoting Gemara and Sanhedrin, their God hates immorality. This incident is the one and only instance in which Moshe becomes despondent. He who fearlessly defended the people after the Chet Egel, after the Meraglim, 
after Korach, suddenly is found weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. At Shittim, the brave and tenacious master of all prophets, lost his resolve. Bilaam was about to win his battle against the Jewish people and Moshe, his adversary, was on the verge of despair. Why? Because without the sanctity of family life, Knesset Yisrael can no longer exist. Without the sanctity of family life, when we're willing to violate the boundaries of sanctity within the Jewish home, within morality, within marriage, within the family life, that's our vulnerability, that's where it unravels from there. When foreign values and influences and images and behaviors enter into our home, and that's the threat of the world that we live in, which is not a physical annihilation, but it's the threat of foreign values of assimilated philosophies that enter our home now through the wonderful gift of, of the internet and magazines and media and uh, print. And this is the vulnerability, that even when we can have a superior military edge, even when spiritually our enemies who seek to curse us, they're transformed into blessings, our vulnerability, writes the Rav, is without the sanctity of family life, Knesset Yisrael can no longer exist. That's the end of the Parsha, where Bilam and Balak finally find our, our weak spot, and the beginning of next week's Parsha, which we'll talk about next week. So coming back to the beginning of our Parsha, Vayar Balak, Balak sees everything going on. Balak sees. We have someone else who's described as seeing everything that went on. Balak ben Sipor saw all the Jewish people did to Emori, and what was the result? How did he respond? He was afraid, and he incited fear within his people, and he became determined to eliminate the Jewish people. But what's the name of this week's parasha? Balak. We have another parasha named for a non-Jew who also was exposed to the goings-on of the Jewish people, and it is Yisro. Vayar Balak Balak saw, and Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard. Not only are they described as employing different senses, Balak sees, Yisro hears, but their reactions are completely opposite one another. What's Yisro's reaction? Here's all that occurred to the Jewish people, miraculously liberated from Egypt, the splitting of the sea, maybe even he heard about uh, the giving of the Torah to debate Mukta Mukhar Torah. He heard about the, um, he heard about the uh, defeat of Amalek or the stalemate with Amalek. It's a big machlok is what exactly he heard. But Yisro heard and he wanted to be part of the Jewish people's story. He wanted to be part of our journey. He wanted to see the next chapter. He wanted to be an insider to touch what was going on. Balak saw what Yisro heard, exact opposite reaction. Not only does he not want to join the Jewish people, he feels threatened and afraid. What does he do as a result? He wants to eliminate. Why the different reactions? Vayishma Yisro, he joins the Jewish people. Vayar Balak, he becomes determined to eliminate the Jewish people. Both saw these unusual victories against all odds. They saw the exact same thing on the surface. But what they saw behind it could not be more different. You see, Pasuk describes that Yisro heard everything that who did? Everything that Hashem did done to Paro. He identified and acknowledged that God, that the Ribbono Shalom was the driving force behind this most extraordinary story. He saw and attributed it to miracles, to divine providence and intervention. And his conclusion was, if this people have been tapped by the Almighty to interfere with nature, to be able to bring about 
their journey. I want to be part of that. I want to be an insider to it. But Balak sees everything the Jewish people do to Emori. And what's his, what's his response? Fear, feeling threatened. Why? Because he doesn't see beneath the surface. He doesn't have a vision beyond. All he sees are a people he's threatened by. He doesn't realize this is the will of the Almighty. This is providence that's brought them to that point. And as a result, he's not impressed with the Jewish people's story. He's not inspired by the Jewish people's story. He's threatened by it. And he's determined to stop it. Two people, Yisro and Balak, they look at the same phenomenon. They read the same headlines. They see the same thing. But one sees Hashem and the other sees nothing. And that's our lives. That's part of what I think the Torah is teaching us by naming these two parashios. Are we going to be Vayishma Yisra or are we going to be Vayar Balak? Do we just see the surface or do we see what's beneath it? Do we see Hashem in our lives like Yisra? Are we drawn to the miraculous story or are we cynical? Are we threatened by the surface story like, like Balak? You have this also in our parasha with Bilam. Bilam doesn't see the angel. So when the donkey stops and kicks Bilam, he hits the donkey, strikes the donkey. And when Bilam finally sees the angel, the Malach, Pasik says, Oh, says Bilam, forgive me. Chatasi, I've done a terrible sin. I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were there. And the Svarno and our Pasha and the Shlach Kadosh wonder, Chatasi? What do you mean I did a terrible sin? If Bilam didn't see the, the uh, angel there, then what did he do wrong? What hate did he violate if in fact he simply didn't see the angel? And the Sforno says, that was the hate. The angel was visible, he just didn't see it. He chose not to see it. He didn't live with a life of vision where he could see. And so that's part of the message, I think, of this parsha is that the choice is up to us to be a Yisra or to be a Balak, to see Hashem's hand, to see the providence, or to take things superficially only on, only on, the, on the surface. And that's Rashi describes that when the angel blocks Bilam's path, Malach sharachamim haya vayarotza lema'ano melachto. It was an angel of rachamim. The angel that had come was an angel of compassion. And he was blocking the path because he was preventing Bilam from doing something that was a mistake that would be self-destructive. And in our lives, sometimes there's a malach who blocks our path. And we can react like Bilam. We could smack the malach, we could smack the donkey. We could try to break through that obstacle and insist that we do it our way. Or sometimes we can stop and realize if there's an obstacle blocking our path, maybe that's in our best interest. That's an angel God has sent to prevent us from doing the wrong thing, from making a mistake, from acting in a self-destructive way. It's all about what we see. Do we only see our self-interest, our vision for what we want, and then any obstacle we want to break through? Or can within the obstacle we see the Yad Hashem, a Malach Shorachamim, that sometimes the obstacle to our path is for our own good, is an angel that God has sent in order to help us. Are we going to be like Balak? Or will we be like Yisro? That's the theme of our Pasha. Yes. Balaam did a sin because he hit the donkey for no reason. The donkey saw the Malach and he was afraid. You're right. He did a terrible thing. And that's why he apologizes afterwards. 
but he claims he couldn't see the angel. But he could have seen if only he had just opened his eyes. Sometimes we have to just open our eyes, and then we can see what's in front of us all along. Great point. Okay, let's get to the psukim we're going to look at. Perach of Dalad, Pasagal of chapter 24, verse 1. Perach of Dalad, Pasuk Aleph. Vayar Bilam. What's going on over here? This is the third time that Bilam has opened up his mouth in order to curse, and it was reversed, transformed from a curse to a blessing. Perach of Dalad, Pasuk Aleph. Vayar Bilam Kitov Beine Hashem Levarechas Yisrael. Velo Alach Kepam Bepam Lekras Nechashim Vayashas El Hamidbar Panav. Bilam saw that it was good in Hashem's eyes to bless the people. In other words, Twice he opened his mouth to curse, and what came out instead was a blessing. And so he realized there's a pattern developing here. God does not want me to curse. He saw that God preferred a blessing. So he did not go as every other time towards towards the grass nechashim. Nechashim is uh, magic, is uh, sorcery, is divinations, like Lotan nechashu. But rather. Instead of going towards magic and sorcery, instead he set his face towards the Midbar. And he lifts his eyes and he sees the Jewish people who are dwelling according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God was on him. What happened? What does it mean he faced the desert as opposed to where was he facing before? And what does it mean he realized that God wanted him to give a blessing? So did Bilaam come to his senses? Has Bilaam done tshuva? Has Bilaam now gone from a villain to a hero? What's going on? So here you have a machlokas. Here you have a machlokas. Says Rashi, Vayar Bilaam Kitov, Omar, any tzarech luvdok od ba'kodesh baruchu, ki lo yechpotz l'klalam. I don't have to check with God anymore. He does not, it's the pattern has emerged. He does not want me to curse the people. That's not what he wants. Rashi continues, So he did not do as he had done previously, which was to enter his trance, to invoke his magic and sorcery, So now, to invoke divinations, maybe God will acquiesce to give a curse. Previously, Bilam thought, let me invoke their shortcomings, and if I incite God's wrath, if I make God angry by reminding God about the transgressions and shortcomings of the people, then God will curse them as I want. Bilam abandons that plan. And instead, Vaisa Bilam Esenav, he raises his eyes. The Ramban. So what's going on over here exactly? What does it mean that he gave up on the divinations and he faces to and he faces to the desert? Look at the Ramban. The Ramban says, Until now, Bilam is looking to curse them using his sorcery. And God came to him God came to him seemingly on chance, randomly, not with intent for prophecy. 
So the Ramban sees within Bilam that for the first time, God did not happen upon him. Moshe could initiate prophecy with God. He was the only one. Every other prophet, including Bilam, God had to happen upon Bilam. For the first time, Bilam did not live with God happening upon him, but God appears to Bilam in fullness, with full glory. So Bilam had come to his senses and realized that the strategy of cursing will not work. He faces the desert because he's having this genuine, complete, and full prophecy. Rashi, that we had just read, saw the opposite. Why is Bilam facing the desert? To invoke the sin, the iniquity, the shortcoming. The desert is the place of the Chet Egel, the Meraglim, Korach. By turning to the desert and trying to elude, trying to invoke God's wrath, at the people, Bilam had not come to his senses. He had not changed his ways. So it's Machlok, it's Rashi and the Ramban. What exactly is going over here? Why does Bilam face the desert? What is he trying to? What is he trying to allude to? This prophecy, this notion, the language of the Ramban here, that it's bimikret. Let's read the Ramban a little bit further. Now Bilaam is no longer the conduit, the instrument of wickedness of trying to curse the Jewish people. Bilaam's come to his senses. He's facing the desert as if looking with merit unto the Jewish people and looking to have access to the true insight and blessing of God. And that's what it means, says the Ramban, that the Spirit of God was on him. So the Ramban contrasts the notion of the mikra, the chance visit of God to Bilam, which was the rest of the time, with this unusual aberration where Bilam has a full, genuine prophecy. In fact, the parsha earlier describes that God chanced upon Bilam. Here, as well as in Parshas Kisetse, we find the Torah uses the root Vayikar, Kuf, Resh, He, which is also the root of the word Mikre. What does the word Mikre mean? Chance, happenstance, randomness. With Amalek it says, Asher Karcha Baderech. And here, Vayikar Elokim El Bilam. God chanced upon Bilam, Amalek chanced upon the Jewish people. And we also saw this, we studied this at the beginning of Sefer Vayikra. What was unusual with that word Vayikra, the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, what God calls to Moshe? The small Aleph, which Chazal tell us, why was the Aleph small? Because Moshe's, due to Moshe's incredible humility, he wanted to suggest that God was also Vayikar, it was Mikra, God chanced upon him too. As opposed to the Aleph, God says, no, I've called out to you, it's by design, it's with purpose, it's with intent. I have called out to you. So here we have Bilam Vayikar. The Rav, Rabbi Salavitchik, writes, the word Vayikar denotes surprise. The word was never used in regard to divine revelation to Moshe or any of the prophet. Bilam, however, said, Hashem maybe God will happen to appear to me. Bilam has doubts. So Vayikar lo kimel Bilam. 
When God actually comes, it's chance, it's randomness. Bilam epitomized Vayikar. What he did and what he wanted to do cannot be understood or explained. There's an element of surprise in the fact that he received divine revelation. Why did God concern himself with Bilam at all, wonders the Rav. Why did he first tell him not to go, then to go, then to go, but to bless? story of Bilam will never truly be understood. And so says the Rav, Amalek's first battle waged against Bnei Israel occurred as the nation left Egypt. Although the Jewish people's destination was distant from the land of Amalek, children of Israel had no intent of declaring war on Amalek, a remote desert-dwelling tribe. Yet suddenly and irrationally, Amalek attacked. There seems to be no motive for their hatred. Their ambush of Bnei Israel cannot be explained in psychological terms. Amalek's attack was initiated to everyone's surprise. Bnei Israel have enemies whose enmity and hostility stem from an irrational hatred. As with Amalek, there's no explanation. In Parshas Vayishlach we read, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Vayivasar Yaakov Levado, Adalos HaShachar. Who is he? Where did he come from? Who does he represent? How can you reconcile differences with him? Torah gives no answer to these disquieting questions. A cloud of anonymity envelops the whole episode. We know nothing about the nature and purpose of the engagement, the bitter struggle. The fiend wanted to destroy Jacob for no reason that was apparent. The basic rules of explanation and investigation cannot be employed in situations such as the irrational attack on Amalek and the fact that Bilam received prophecy. So says the Rav, the use of the Vayikar, of the Kuf Reish both Amalek's attack and Bilam's attempt to curse us is really at the root of all anti-Semitism. We just came back from a week in Poland, visiting Treblinka, Majdanek, Auschwitz, Birkenau, ghettos, mass graves. And the, the question that hovered above the cloud of the entire trip that you can't avoid is what is the root of anti-Semitism? Why? Why would an advanced country who were, who were intellectual... What did he say? Two-thirds of the attendees of the Vansi conference had PhDs? It's, it's unimaginable. It's unfathomable. Sitting across from Majdanek, which is a borders, a town, is a university. You look out the windows of the university into a death camp. You just can't reconcile. What is the root? What is the core of anti-Semitism? That not only in the Holocaust, a magnitude which is categorically different than anything that came before, but anti-Semitism, that's roots began with the birth of our nation, and who after the little sabbatical we took after the Holocaust, have come back with a vengeance. What is the root? And countless books have been written and attempts to try to make sense of anti-Semitism, to explain anti-Semitism. And what Rabbi Soloveitchik is suggesting here, that the use of the word Vayikar, the Mikra, Asher Korcha Baderach of Amalek, and here Vayikar is, it defies explanation. It is irrational. It is an irrational hatred. Don't think you can understand it. Don't think you can explain it. It's something which is utterly and entirely irrational. It's something which will continue. You know, the Rav wrote, I skipped it at the end, but we talked about the Jew, that we became seduced by Moab. So the Rav has a whole section. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Orgiastic man not only responds to inevitable biological urges whose fulfillment yields pleasure, but experiments with precipitating new pressures and unheard of newly contrived artificial situations which challenge the body to respond by engaging in gratifying action. Our Western society is a typical representative of the aesthetic society. And he talks about when we're drawn to beauty and we're drawn to the external and we're seduced by art 
and we think that that's an end into itself rather than a means to connect to God, then we are vulnerable, then we fall prey. He has a whole essay here, but it, it, it's most poignant and again resonates with me given where we just were. He writes, Is beauty good and art cathartic by its very nature? Let me put aside philosophic abstractions and relate to you a small incident which took place in Vilna during the German occupation. I heard there was a Gestapo officer there who was an accomplished musician, an expert on Beethoven and Mozart. He was also an expert in killing children. He particularly liked to engage in both of the hobbies simultaneously. While he sat at a piano or organ in the courtyard of the Gestapo headquarters in Vilna, the officers used to line up little children. Ambidextrous, he played Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata with his right hand, while the left hand was busy shooting innocent babies with a, with a pistol. Is this the kind of catharsis of which Aristotle spoke? If you investigate into the background of Hitler and his entourage, which consists of psychopaths and maniacs, you'll find among them many people with a developed sense of beauty, accomplished musicians, art critics, and the like. They loved beauty and they succumbed to beauty, but they also liked spilling Jewish blood. Somehow beauty did not protect them from murder. And it's uh, really worthwhile to read this entire, this entire essay. So the Vayikar, you can't reconcile these two things. And trying to understand anti-Semitism will lead to a road that has no destination. One has to see it ultimately as something which defies, it's irrational and it defies explanation. Okay, back to our psukim. So the Ramban and the Rashi dis- debate, what does it mean that Bilam looks out at the Midbar? Is that a uh, Bilam's favor. He came to his senses and now he wants to receive a full prophecy. No longer God chancing upon him. No longer the anti-Semite looking to curse. But now he wants to be a vehicle, an instrument for God's will. Or no, he's looking out at the Midbar. Why? Because he's telling God, yeah, the Midbar. That's where they did the eagle and the Meraglim. That's the place of Korach. And so on and so forth. That's the Machlok. As Bilam lifts his eyes and he sees the Jewish people, Shochein Lishvatav. Says Rashi, what does it mean? Each tribe is dwelling independently. They are not integrated. He sees that the tents are aligned, not opposite. They're staggered so that privacy is preserved. You can't see from one tent into another. And when Bilam sees that, Bilam sees their modesty, sees their humility, sees their privacy, sees the respect that each shevet has, not forcing them for universalism to integrate and lose their individuality, but the particularism of each shevet being able to preserve its identity. He's moved by the diversity and yet the unity, the privacy, and it's seeing that virtue within the Jewish people that vatiya lav ruach elokim that he's taken by a spirit of Hashem and he therefore does not want to curse the Jewish people. What does he see? Says the Yorachayim HaKadosh, Pasuk Beis, Vayar l'shvatav ati alav, Sherobem shnein yanim gedolim, he sees two great things. Echad shochen kosheve v'sheve v'fnei atzmo, each tribe lives alone. Beis vati alav, shaisa shorashchina al kosheve v'fnei atzmo, malko berosho. That it's not only that the tribes it's not only that Shivan Panama Torah, it's not only that there are diverse ways of living as a Jew, but that God embraces and loves and dwells within the diversity. Each tribe has its way. 
Gan Remez Kasha Shnei Dvarim Api Devreim Shomu Shbeamtso Shnitri Yisro B'derech Zeh Kol Shevet V'Shevet B'Thnei Atzmo Shekina Aleim Shekina Shachna Aleim Shekina V'Nasu Merkav Allah V'Uma Shediktik Loma Vatiya Lav Ruach Elokim God loves our diversity What invokes the blessing says the Orachayim not when the Jewish people meld, not when there's conformity and uniformity, but when Shevet Lishvatav, when Vayaris Yisrael Shochein Lishvatav, when the tribes maintain their individuality and yet function with unity, then Vatiyalav Ruach Elokim. That's what Bilam is so impressed by, he's moved by. That's what invokes the Shechina to come dwell, is that when we're able to have both. The Maharal says this as well, we'll see in a moment. The Matobu Alecha Yaakov's, Bilam's blessing, which becomes the beginning of our sinner, which is an icon of our davening. What's Matobu Alecha, Mishkan Osecha, the Oel and the Mishkan? Rashi says maybe Bilam saw the tents were not aligned, you couldn't see into one another. Or the alternative shot is that this is a reference to the Mishkan and to the Besan Mikdash, and they have been destroyed. The Maharal says, what's the connection between not seeing into each other's tents? And the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. What do the two have to do with one another? Says the Maral, the Beis HaMikdash stands only in the merit of our Achtos. There were 13 entrances to the Beis HaMikdash. One for each tribe, and a 13th entrance, the Shar HaKolel, for those who didn't know which tribe they're from, for unusual outliers to walk in through that 13th gate. But there were multiple gates to the Beis HaMikdash. You could access God through diverse Jewish lifestyle, Jewish living. And when, under, when we embrace that, the Beis HaMikdash stands strong. And when we have sinas chinam, when we hate one another, and marginalize and judge and dismiss one another, Beis HaMikdash is destroyed. So when the tents don't look into one another, when I'm not checking out what's going on in your camp, when I'm not telling you how to live in your tent, when I'm not judging what's going on in your home, then we can have achtos in the merit of the Beis HaMikdash. But when our tents face one another and we're peering into one another's tents and criticizing and demeaning and gossiping and dismissing one another by looking into each other's tents, then the Al and the Mishkan, Matovu Alacha, Mishkan Osecha, then our greatest places are vulnerable to collapse and to, and to destruction. So what Bilam is moved by, and the reason that Rebbe Shalom himself dwells is something that is, uh, we know the theme of our community, we place a lot of emphasis and speak a lot about, but it's preserving that Shochein Lishvatav, to find that right balance. Diversity, not divisiveness. Unity, not uniformity. Okay, next Pasuk. Vaisab Yomar. So now we get to Bilam's actual bracha. He wants to give a mashal, his parable, the bracha. Vayomar, and what does he say? Nu'um Bilam b'no b'or, nu'um ha'gever shesum ha'ayin. Bilam uh, talks about himself in third person, a little arrogance. And he says, the words of Bilam, son of Boor, the words of the man with an open eye. He characterizes himself as a man with an open eye. What does that mean? So look at Rashi, Beno Boor, Kemolamayno Mayim, Medrashagadashnema Yigidolame Avoseim, Balak Beno Tzipor, Aviv Beno Humbamalchus, Ubilam Gadome Aviv Benevius, that Bilam and Balak were each greater than their father. And that's what Bilam is invoking with an arrogance. Bilam beno Boor, I greater than my father. He describes himself as having a shesum ayin, an open eye. Rashi here writes, Eino nekuro umotzas lechutz. 
His eye fell out of its socket. And you can see the socket was exposed, was visible. But if you skip down, the end of Rashi says, the Gemara in Sanhedrin Kofei says, from the fact that Bilam describes himself as blind, as an open, ayin, not a nayim, why does he say in the singular, his eye, not his eyes, our rabbis deduce that Bilam was blind in one eye. We find about some of the greatest villains in the Torah, they were blind in one eye. Bilam in this parsha, and last week, two weeks ago parsha, Korach. Korach, it says, Eino, Hitiso, his eye led him astray. Why doesn't it say Einaim? Why does it say his eye Eino? Because Korach too was blind in one eye. What is the meaning, the symbolism of being blind in one eye? So we know the Jewish people has been said in the name of Rav Simcha Bunim, Peshischa, the Katzko Rebbe, it's been said in the name of every Rebbe. A Rebbe once said, that the job of a Jew is to walk around with a note in each of our pockets. On one it says, I am dust of the earth. I am nothing. I am worm food. I am unworthy. I am absolutely nothing. And on the other pocket, what does it say? For me, the entire world was created. If I were the only one to exist, all of creation would be worthwhile just for me. It's all here for me. And the job of a Jew is to walk around with a petek, with a little note in each pocket, one that speaks of our loneliness, our humility, our unworthiness. I am utterly nothing. And the other, I am everything. And the key to life, the secret to life is to know when to take out which note from which pocket. When do you need to remind yourself of a little humility? And when do you need a healthy dose of a little self-confidence, of a little worthiness? It's that balance. The schools of thought of Musr, we've talked about this in the past at length, which I won't revisit. But Slobodka, Navardic, and Kelm, the debate among the schools of Musr was, what will motivate greater growth within a person? Focusing on Madrega Sa'adam, Gadla Sa'adam, or Shifla Sa'adam? Kelm was about Shifla Sa'adam, the loneliness of man. If you realize how pathetic you are, and you live with the humility of the knowledge of how pathetic we are, that will inspire, that will be the catalyst for growth. So they would have lotteries to pick straws. Who got to be the one to clean the toilet in the bathroom of the yeshiva? They would intentionally position themselves to be embarrassed, to say things that would be embarrassing, to go places in a way that was embarrassing, because the humility, the embarrassment would generate humility, feeling pathetic, and that would stimulate growth. Whereas Slobodka came to the opposite conclusion. Godless Adam. If you want to realize that Ma'at Me'elokim, the eighth capital of Tehillim says, well, what's Ma'at Chasar? Well, I forgot exactly the Russian and the Pasuk. What is it? Ma'at Me'elokim. We're just a little bit below God. We have Godless Adam, the greatness of man. Slobodka had a tailor on staff in the yeshiva. And if you were missing a button on your shirt or jacket, you were not allowed into the base medrash. Not allowed into the base medrash. We had access to the image of Slobodka. So many of the transformative leaders of the 20th century in America were Talmidim of Slobodka. And my mother describes seeing Rabbi Taitz in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the way he carried himself, a regal, royal, dignified, the godless Ha'adam, 
the greatness, Rav Luderman and Ner Yisrael, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and Torah Vadas. We have so many examples of, of the Slabodka philosophy. Why am I telling this to you? Because these are the two views, and the, the key to life is the balance between the two. When do you need a little dose of godless Adam? When do you need to be reminded of shiftless Adam? That you're great or you're nothing. Harini Kafra Ve'efer and Harayani and Bishvilin Evra Olam. And we live with that balance between the two. The balance between the two provides something called perspective. And if you lack the balance between the two, you lack perspective. With one eye, we see the world through the lens of the greatness of man. And through the other eye, we see through the, great, the eye of how pathetic we are. And those who are blind in one eye, who lack that perspective, are the villains of our history who led themselves and tried to lead us astray. So here, Bilam lacks the eye of humility. He's blind in one eye. He doesn't see. He lacks the perspective of shiftless Adam. He lives a philosophy exclusively of, of godless Adam. Korach is the opposite. Korach sees everybody as equal. He's blind in one, he's blind in, in one eye. You have to be able to see with perspective. You have to be able to see both sides of something. What was the opening of Korach? I think we shared this two weeks ago. Did we have a Parsha class? I don't even remember. It says, Korach, Vayikach Korach. Where did he take himself? Rashi quotes Chazal. Lakach is atzmo tzad echad. He took himself to one side. Rav Naftali of Rapshitz. We were just near Rapshitz in Poland. Rav Naftali of Rapshitz says, what does it mean he took himself to one side? Says Rav Naftali of Rapshitz, on any issue there's two sides. Shneit tzadim. Vayikach Korach. He failed to be able to see something from another perspective. He failed to be able to see the other side. Pikeach, the word for a smart, intelligent person, the gematria of pikeach is the same as tzad times two. I said this two weeks ago. Right? To be smart, you have to be able to see both perspectives. You have to see out of both eyes. When you're blind in one eye, you lack perspective, that's when you get in trouble. Let's keep going. The words of the one who hears the sayings of God, who sees the vision of God while fallen and with uncovered eyes. All an introduction to his now, his latest nevuah. What does he say? How great are the tents of Yaakov, the dwelling places of Yisrael. Already at the period of the Gaonim, this Pasuk was included in their Siddur, was introduced in our Davenim. There's a big debate. The Maharshal, the Maharshal has a discussion. Do we invoke the language, the liturgy of non-Jews within our own liturgy? And whenever that discussion arises, you have this precedent. Matovu Alecha. It's the poetic description, the praise of the Jewish people from the word mouth of a Russia, of the wicked Bilam which formed the beginning of our Siddur already at the time of the Gaonim, in the 10th century, in the 11th century, the end of the 9th century. Matovu alacha. Why were these words chosen? What's so significant, what's so great about this praise, about this blessing? Says Rashi, As we said earlier, what moved Bilam was he saw their tents were not opposite one another. They preserved a sense of privacy. This actually is within Jewish law. We began discussing at Mincha yesterday, we'll continue today. We have a concept called Hezek Re'iyah. Just like there are the laws of Mazik, of Hezek, I can't punch you in the face, I can't 
not hit your car with my car. I can't. We have all the laws of damages. One of the damages is if I rob you of your privacy. So if I build the second floor that looks into your pool and you no longer are able to operate in a private way in a place in which you had a right and an expectation to have privacy, that's a form of mazik. It's a form of hezek. It's a form of damages. I've stolen your right to have privacy. And it, it falls within halacha. Halacha has rules and regulations about what has to happen. Tonight at Mincha, we're going to learn a tshuva. Rav Asher Weiss wrote to our community. I asked him a shayla based on someone here who built a second floor and his two neighbors objected for opposite reasons. One said, if you put up landscaping, you'll block my view. You have no right to block my view. The other neighbor said, if you don't put up landscaping, you'll see right in my pool. You better put up landscaping. So here we have two neighbors who have two interests. One says, don't put up anything that will block my view. The other says, block the view to my pool. Which interest supersedes the other? Are both of them halachically valuable interests? Does, does a view have significance in halacha? Privacy have significance in halacha? So the Gemara Baba Basra and Samach, when it deals with this issue, the origin of Hezekiah, it quotes our Pasuk, that Bilam blesses the Jewish people, Matovu Halacha Yaakov! Wow! Your construction, your HOA rules, Jewish HOA rules, are different than anyone else. Because one of the variables is not just how much of the lot did you build on and square footage and the, the box look and whatever. One of the concerns is, and did you invade the privacy of your neighbor? Matovu Allah Yaakov. This is the origin of Hezekiah. What's so great about this? Mishkin Osecha says Rashi, Chani Oscha, Tavaracha Matovu Allah, Matovu O Shiloh, Beis Olamim, Beishuvan, Shemakrivan, and Karbanos, the Chapra Alechem. That's what I alluded to earlier. That the OL. And the Mishkan are Shiloh and the Beis Mikdash. Mishkan Osecha Rashi Afkeshein Charven, even when they destroyed the Fishein Mashkon Alechem, Chorbon and Kapara on the Fashos. They are a Mashkon, they are collateral on you, even in their destruction, it is an atonement for you and for your sins. The Sforno interprets differently. Look at the Sforno. Matovu Alach Yaakov, Bate Torah, Kinyan Yoshev Oalim. What's an Oel? Oel is always used as the symbol of a. Bismedrish. Yaakov is described the Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. Yaakov is the diligent student who sits and learns. So Matohu, how great are the Oalacha Yaakov, Yaakov, the Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. How beautiful are your Bate Medrash, your places of study. And what are Mishkin Osecha says for now? Bate Kinesios and Mikdashe Kelam Yuchadam Shachain Shimosham. Mishkin Osecha, L'shakein Shemosham, are the places, not the base Medrash, but the base Knesses. It's the place we go to Davin, it's the place we go to sacrifice. Matovu, they are a source of goodness. When our base Medrash is filled in the room behind, check it out on your way out. We have a magnificent summer kolal of 20 young men, Yeshiva University, learning here all day and all night this summer. Absolutely incredible what's going on. Check it out. When you have a vibrant base Medrash, the, the, the uh, O'alecha Yaakov, and you have an equally vibrant Mishkin Osecha, the shul is filled with the sounds of tefillah, not God forbid talking. Then Matovu, it is a benefit not just to those who are in there, but it's a benefit for the whole community. It's a benefit for the whole nation. 
It's a benefit for everybody. And the Sforno continues, this is the meaning of the next Pasuk. Pasuk Vav. Water shall flow from his wells, his seed shall be by abundant waters, his king shall be exalted over Agag, and his kingdom shall be upraised. Says the Sforno, what is this notion of the flowing water? Writes the Sforno, Just like water flows to the field and irrigates it, the Torah that emanates from the base Medrash, the sounds of tefillah that emerge from the shul, flow to the Jewish people and water them, nurture them, nourish them. A beautiful imagery of the, of the Sephorno. Rav Kook has a different interpretation of the Matovu Alecha Yaakov, the Mishkin Yisrael. Why do we go from an O.L. to, a, to the uh, image of a Mishkan? And why do we go from Yaakov to the image of Yisrael? These two changes. So Rav Kook says the following. He says, as we strive for spiritual growth, we utilize two different means that are different but complement one another. The first is our aspiration to elevate ourselves. We want greater wisdom and enlightenment want to refine our emotions, to ennoble our spirit. We're on a path and a trajectory of growth. The second is restraint. That in order to internalize these gains, we need to sometimes show restraint and to rest and to apply what we've gained. Says Rav Kook, the tent and the mishkan are both types of temporary shelter. They both relate to the, the soul's journey. The tent, the ol, is connected to traveling. When is it that you pitch a tent and you take it down? When you're journeying, when you're traveling. It corresponds with ambition, aspiration, spiritual growth. The Mishkan is what you build in between your journeys. The Mishkan represents what you do when you're resting. Says Rav Kook, which one is greater? The Oel, when you're moving, when you're journeying, when you're growing, when you're aspiring? Or no, the Mishkan, when you build a a mishkan in between your journeys when you rest and you set up a residence. So which one, says Rav Kook? It's Ohalacha Yaakov, but Yaakov's greater name is Yisrael, the Mishkan Osecha Yisrael. Because when you're on the move, when you're spiritually inspired, that's wonderful. When you're growing, it's phenomenal, it's impressive. But when you're in between your growth spurts, when you're resting and you can still live on that level, that's the higher level, that's the Mishkan Osecha Yisrael, that's at an even higher level. One last thing, we're already running out of time, but skip ahead. As part of this thir- third bracha that Bilam gives, one more pasuk. Kara, skip to pasuk test. Kara shachav ka'ariu chalavim yikimenu mevarecha chabaruch vaurarecha. Or. So the end of the third time that he gives the bracha. Pasuk test. He crouched and lay down like a lion, and like a lion cub, who can stand, up, stand him up? Those who bless you are blessed, and those who curse you are cursed. If only we believe that as much as evangelicals and other nations of the world, that those who bless the Jewish people are themselves blessed, those who curse the Jewish people are themselves cursed. That's how Bilam ends the third of a series of, of brachas. But it's the first half of that pasuk that's really I want to call to your attention. First of that pasuk, Karasha Chav Kari, Uchilavim Yikimenu. 
He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lion cub who can stand him up. The Gemara is an incredible Gemara in Brachos. And the Gemara says the following. Omar Rabbi Avoh ben Zutarti, Omar Rabbi Yehuda ben Zvida, Bikshu l'kvoa parshas balach b'kriyashma. When the sitter was established, when davening was ordained, was organized, the thought was that we would read this parsha every day, just like we read Shema. In davening we read Shema, we'd also read Balak. And why was it not instituted into our davening? Because, you could all breathe a sigh of relief, Balak is not a short parsha. It would imagine how long davening would be every morning if you had to read all of Balak within davening. My timer, why did they want to put it in? What Pasuk in Parsha's Balak made the rabbis want to institute reciting Balak every day with Shema? Says the Gemara, Kel because God took us out of Egypt. Lema Parsha's Ribas Parsha's Mishkalos. So that's the case. Why don't we also include in davening the Parsha, the story of the prohibition of of usury and of, of dishonest weights, they also mention leaving Egypt. So you're right. So the Gemara gives another answer. You know which Pasuk in this Parsha motivated the rabbis to want to include it in davening? The Pasuk we just read. He crouches and lays down like a lion, like a lion cub, who can stand him up? What about that Pasuk motivated the rabbis to want to include it in Shema. What is so moving about that Pasuk specifically? Why that Pasuk? Any ideas? Any thoughts? So, I think, I don't remember where I first saw this. I think it was from the Rav. It's not in the New Chumash. But, Shema contains two fundamental axioms, two principles of the Torah. The unity of God, Shem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Kabbalah Sol Malchus Shemayim, and Kabbalah Sol Mitzvos. The two paragraphs, first two of Shema. We recognize God's uniqueness, the unity of His existence, we accept His dominion over us, and we also accept as an extension that we have an obligation, therefore, to bend to His will, to answer His call, to perform mitzvos. What ties the two together, what binds them, is the Jewish people. Shema's only fulfilled, Kabbalah's Ol Machus and Kabbalah's Ol Mitzvahs only have meaning in combination when you see at their root the eternality, the timelessness, the immortality of the Jewish people. The prophecy of Bilam says the Jewish people lie down like a lion. We're the strongest in the kingdom. What is the lion king? The lion is the king. Everyone else in the king animal kingdom sleeps with one eye open for fear they will be eaten by others. Only the lion can sleep with his eyes closed, can sleep at night with no fear at all. And maybe Chazal wanted us to read Balak and Shema together to remember that there are two non-negotiables in the world. The two non-negotiables in the world, you know, kingdoms rise and fall, fads come in and go out, fashions come and go. But the two non-negotiables in the world are the Almighty and the Jewish people. And that's what this Pasuk, Shema is God's immortality, God's eternality. That's Shema. But that Pasuk, that we go to sleep like the lion, we can rest with both eyes closed, knowing we will be here forever, 
that we don't run the risk of disappearing, that speaks to the immortality of the Jewish people. And this the Rav did say, that one of the animamans, that we believe, we sang this together on our trip in Treblinka, because the tune, the haunting tune of animamin, familiar to us, was composed on the train to Treblinka and delivered to the Majitsu Rebbe. It's an incredible story in its own right. But the animamin states that I believe with all my heart, with all my faith, the Vias HaMashiach, <coughs> I believe Mashiach will come even if I wait. And asks Rabbi Salavechik, this is in his Alachuva. He says, How can you believe in Mashiach if Mashiach's arrival depends on us? Maybe we'll never be worthy. Maybe he'll never come. And the Rav says, Faith in Mashiach is faith in the Jewish people's worthiness. It's that we will one day prove worthy that we have that capacity within us, that we can live to God's expectations of us, we can realize God's dream for us, that that power is in our hands. So, when we go to sleep and when we wake up, as we recite the Shema, the belief that there is a God, we recite this Pasuk from Balak, the belief, the confidence that our people can yet prove worthy that despite the systematic attempts to annihilate and exterminate us, that we are here and that we are here for good, that we are a non-negotiable in the world. I'll end with this. Rabbi Schechter has in his new Sefer on the Parsha. He quotes Rabbi Tachtel, Rabbi Sachar Tachtel, the author of the Ema Ban Bismecha, a Hungarian Chassid, anti-Zionist, who in his experience in the Holocaust became a great lover of Israel and wrote the book Ema Banam Smecha it's been translated several times now to English wrote it from memory with no access to sources an extraordinary Talmachacham and he quotes the Yorachayim from our Parsha elsewhere Bilam says Darach kochav mi Yaakov shevet mi Israel. a star is issued from Yaakov a scepter has risen from the Jewish people what is this talking about? so this is the uh, the Rambam quotes this as the origin of the belief in Mashiach, from that Pasuk, a Pasuk in our Parsha, about the Kamshevet Misra, Kochav Mi Yaakov, a star has come from Yaakov. What does that remind you of? Kochav Mi Yaakov. This Pasuk was the source of Rabbi Akiva's grave miscalculation. Rabbi Akiva thought that Shimon Bar Koziva, who led the rebellion against the Romans 60 years after the Churban, thought that he was Mashiach, and therefore nicknamed him not Bar Kaziva, but nicknamed him Bar Kochva, the son of the star. Why did he call him Bar Kochva? Because of the Pasuk in our Parsha. Kochav mi Yaakov. Kochav, the star. Kochva, Kochav. The Yerushalmi says other Tanaim disagreed with Rabbi Akiva, but they had a tradition from the Gemara, and so on. So Rav Teichtel quotes an interesting comment of the Yorachayim in our Parsha. If the Geula comes due to the merit of B'nai Yisrael, Mashiach will appear as a wondrous miracle, shining forth from the heaven like a kochav, like a shooting star. But if not, the Redeemer will come sluggishly as a shevet, a scepter, in the form of a government like all others. This comment echoes the Gemara in Sanhedrin, says Rav Shechter, which similarly distinguishes between the two ways in which Mashiach can arrive. Ani Hashem I am God and it's time I will hasten it, a Pasuk from Yeshaya. The Gemara says, if Jews are deserving, God will hasten the redemption. If they're not deserving, it will come in the preordained time. If the Jewish people are worthy of redemption, the arrival of Mashiach will be supernatural and swift. If they are not deserving, he'll come like a humble man riding on a donkey. Which relates back to the Chamor of Bilam, the Avram and Moshe. In a slow and the natural 
and a natural process. So this parsha is all about the way we look at the world. Is it like Yisro? Is it like Balak? The end of the parsha is about our vulnerability. The sanctity of the Jewish home is what preserves our strength. It's about Bilam being impressed by our diversity and our unity. But ultimately it's about the immortality of the Jewish people. Almost saying this in our davening every morning and every night, knowing that not only is God forever, not only is God a non-negotiable, but our faith and our belief. Sometimes our faith is shaken. When we make a chil Hashem, this happened again so recently, when the Jewish people make headlines in a negative fashion, you can lose your faith in the Jewish people, in the Jewish experience, in the Jewish story. But we have to remember this Pasuk. When we go to Poland and we see the destruction of six million, a million and a half children, you could lose your faith that our people have a future. That's what this Pasuk, every morning, every night, we don't do it because of Tircha de Tzibura. But every morning and every night, what Chazal thought of was the same way we need to constantly renew our faith in God's existence, the non-negotiable of His existence, so too in the existence of the Jewish people, the belief and the confidence in our worthiness, the Mashiach will yet come. Then here at the